Welcome to the Climate Workshop Podcast. I'm Tim DeChristopher. And I'm Peter Bowden. And we are working through the challenges of the climate crisis from the uncharted to the unthinkable. Over the past few years, some of the biggest stories of the climate movement, as well as some of the most dramatic photos, have involved acts of civil disobedience. We've seen actions from coast to coast in the United States and civil disobedience in countries around the world. Some actions have been one-time disruptions, like the valve turners who shut off the supply of tar sands to the United States. Others have been long-term campaigns, like the resistance at Standing Rock or the West Roxbury Mass Pipeline resistance in Boston. Nearly all these civil disobedience actions aim to stop fossil fuel extraction and infrastructure expansion, which is a primary task in mitigating the climate crisis. In this episode, a primer on civil disobedience in the climate movement. Tim, you're often thought of as a civil disobedience guy because of your background. Yeah, yeah, it's something I end up talking about quite a lot and doing every once in a while. And, and a lot of my work for the past decade now has, has revolved around civil disobedience. You became widely known because you were imprisoned by the United States government for disrupting oil and gas auction under the Bush administration, right? Yeah. I want you to give us a primer, a little mini crash course on the role of civil disobedience in the climate movement. In, in 2008, um, that was at a time in the climate movement when there was not a lot of confrontational strategies going on, particularly in, in the mainstream of the movement. Um, there was a lot more appeasement of uh, folks saying, you know, we just need to create a cleaner, greener version of the world that we have now and trying to appease those at the top of the power structure. Um, and and so that's that's actually why I was looking for an opportunity to do civil disobedience. I was studying social movement history at the time and seeing that all of our successful social movements in America's past relied on much more confrontational strategies and tactics than the climate movement was using at the time. Um, civil disobedience has certainly become a lot more popular and, and embraced by a much wider spectrum of the climate movement. Um, and I think by the left in general over the past five years or so. So what do you see as the primary role of civil disobedience? Well, I'm not even sure I would say that there's a primary role, but there's there, there's a lot of roles that play different pieces in, in different parts of it. You know, so so one, one role of it that, it that I think is embraced by pretty much everybody who practices it is civil disobedience as a, a force for political pressure to, to put pressure on decision makers, whether that's the president, whether that's a, a city council, whether that's a, a corporation that a, a certain campaign is trying to change something that they're doing. And by drawing negative attention to, to what that corporation or what the government is doing, and oftentimes by forcing the, that power structure of the government into revealing itself. Part of the reason that, that civil disobedience works for political pressure is that it can unmask a situation where the where the underlying violence can be quite subtle, and right. and civil disobedience forces those those power figures to engage in overt violence to enforce their control. You know, and that's something that like historically in say the civil rights movement where people were protesting segregation. You know, I think before that, when you look at a lot of white America that looked at segregation and they said, oh, you know, separate water fountains, what's the big deal? It's not like, you know, there's real violence going on. But it was, of course, a system built on 
violent repression of a certain segment of society. But that wasn't revealed until people violated those rules of segregation. And, and all of a sudden, America was confronted with those, those vivid images of overt violence of people getting their heads bashed in at, at lunch counters or getting their bus blown up on the Freedom Rides. And, and then it became very clear and very, very dramatic that, that segregation was actually a system of violence. You know? And so I think we're in a similar position now where people are, are thinking about climate change and and a large segment of the population is saying, yeah, you know, that's, that's a concern, but it's not like we're actually hurting anyone. You know, it's not like we're inflicting systemic violence against young people and future generations. But in fact, that is what climate change is. It is a, a system of, of violence and oppression of, of the young by the old. Um, and those are, those are always relative terms, you know, and so we're, you know, kind of both benefiting and already suffering from from the impacts of climate change, but when people put themselves in those positions of vulnerability and and force the government or or other power structures into making what was subtle violence into overt violence, then it becomes very obvious how immoral the status quo really is, and and you know that was never more clear than with Standing Rock last year. You know I think. A lot of government agencies learned from earlier chapters of history, from from the civil rights movement and from other protest movements, and and realized that they had to make even that enforcement of the rules, they had to make that violence more subtle. And so they used this sort of sanitized violence of the state incarcerating people as a substitute for, you know, Bull Connor and his thugs beating people up on the bridge. And and so there's been less of those like bloody confrontations. But but Standing Rock was was kind of a turning point where, you know, just the the threat of arrest wasn't enough to discourage people, and and they kept coming, they kept persisting, and after and after months of maintaining that resistance, the the forces of authority there, the uh, the Morton County Sheriff's Office, the the state police, the private security, they all turned violent in very dramatic ways, right. and and the country was really confronted with that image of of how far the government was willing to go to protect the interests of the fossil fuel industry over the interests of the people. And thereby exerting political pressure. Yeah. And under the government that we had then, that was successful. You know, Obama came out and um, and canceled the permit for that, for that pipeline. You know, it, it was shut down as of December 5th of 2016, after some of the, the most dramatic violence had, had happened there. You know, after People were hosed down with water cannons in freezing temperatures after they had dogs sicked on them. You know, after Sophia Willancy's arm was blown off by by a cop's grenade. You know, that was that was the kind of images that we that we haven't seen very often in this country for the past couple of decades. You know, that that got people's attention. It did build political pressure. You know, not only did Obama make that decision, but you saw more Democratic politicians coming out and and making statements that created that political pressure. But it takes a willingness to invite that violence to really exert the greatest political pressure that that can come there which is which is a challenge for a professionalized movement where you have NGOs with big budgets that that are nominally leading a campaign and people are waiting for leadership from those organizations you know those organizations really can't and I think ethically shouldn't be asking people to put themselves 
in in that kind of harm's way. You know, that's that's a tough position for for any leader, but especially a professional leader like that to be in. And that's why those those most confrontational and powerful kinds of of civil disobedience where people are taking those big risks often come from from the ground up from from grassroots campaigns where they're not being instructed by by some major national figure or by some big organization but but it's it's people at the front line of resistance that that are empowered to take those kinds of actions you know and the other challenge about that kind of political pressure you know is that it only works with a political figure that is embarrassed by having to be violent it's it only works with a political figure that that has to present a facade of representing shared values of of compassion and you know all the things that that we generally value in our society and if you have a political figure that bases his leadership off of ruthlessness off of breaking taboos like our current president then then civil disobedience doesn't really work the same way in terms of of creating political pressure and so that's been kind of a reckoning for the a lot of movements over the past year and it's caused people to kind of question some of these tactics but also you know, also realize that there are more things going on with civil disobedience than than just political pressure and that there's other roles that we need to be tapping into right. as well. Okay, so what are some of its other roles? So one of the big roles that civil disobedience often does effectively is help to build movements. And and part of the reason that it's effective for movement building is just that it gets attention in the same way we talked about with with public education, but but also that it that it projects the movement in in a different kind of way and, and creates a different kind of invitation for people than than how we normally try to recruit and engage people into into movements and into activism, where it presents our our vulnerability in one way. So something I've often said is that a lot of the people who initially supported my early activism with Peaceful Uprising and with stuff around my trial, a lot of the people who are most committed were not people who were already hardcore activists. A lot of them were women around my mother's age. And and I think part of the reason for that was that they were able to associate me with their own kids. And and they saw that I actually needed their help. Like I was I was legitimately in over my head. Right. And if it, if it hadn't been for all the supporters that they rallied around me at that time, you know, things would have worked out much worse for me. And so they, they saw that I actually needed their help. And, you know, being able to connect to a, a person or a group of people that actually need your help on a fundamental level is a different kind of invitation than saying, here's this big geopolitical issue that you need to get engaged with to, to help everyone around the globe. It's a different kind of invitation. Right, we're wired for story. We don't respond to abstracts. We need individual faces, stories, people to relate to. That makes sense. Right, yeah. You know, and and the other thing that that civil disobedience does for movement building is that it answers the question of how serious is the climate crisis, not with facts and figures and statistics about the seriousness of this issue, but with a human story that says climate change is so serious that I'm willing to do this action. I'm willing to take this personal risk. I'm willing to go to jail to get beaten up by cops or whatever it may be in order to do something about it. 
And and I think that's something that's that's often missing from a lot of our other tactics and strategies of activism in which we're, we try to present ourselves as reasonable, but we're talking about this immense catastrophic issue of climate change, of you know the, the greatest threat to our civilization the world has ever faced. And there's very little that our actions can do in any sort of presentation or anything like that that can even be considered like a rational response to talking about the greatest and most urgent threat humanity has ever faced. And and so we're we're always in this this sort of lack of credibility position where we're like, the whole world is at stake, so we want you to, you know, change your light bulbs and sign this petition. Uh, and people are like, that doesn't make sense. No, people are looking at their immediate friends, colleagues, and if those people aren't demonstrating that we're at climate DEFCON 1 existential threat, then they're like, oh, can't be that bad. You know, the world's okay. Just looking can't. at the world, looking at the movement itself. You know, like, right. I remember in, in 2009, I was presenting this workshop in, in Salt Lake, and, and I started out by saying, you know, before we get started, I got a message from the building management, and, uh, and I started outlining on the board, like, the temperatures at which different materials burn, and how, you know, a fire that, that was started in the downstairs bathroom spread through the walls, and blah, 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 and, like, you know, exactly how much time we might have as the fire is spreading around us before we absolutely need to get out of the building, you know, and, and said, you know, so the building's on fire, and, and so... Everyone needs to leave, and then folks want to volunteer to help put that fire out. You know, please sign up. Blah blah blah. And, and everybody like looked at me blankly, and, and I was like, "So does anyone believe that the house, that this building is on fire?" And they were like, "Well, no, <laughs> because that's not how you'd be if talking to if us." You're talking such a if you thought the building was way. on fire, right? Like, if you're trying to convince people that the building's on fire, you better be carrying a fucking bucket. Like, you better be trying to put it out and get people out of the building. And and I think that's part of what civil disobedience does for getting people engaged in the climate crisis. It's, right, it's the, oh my god, the house is on fire, we're all going to die tone, not the, I'm here to do your taxes tone. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, you know, so that increase in civil disobedience in the movement over the past five years has correlated with an increase in participation and, and with building a mass movement. And, and so it's been effective for that. And, you know, the other thing that you hear in terms of the role of civil disobedience is from the people that are actually engaged in it or the people who have done it. And that's where you realize that it's, that it's transformational for the people actually engaged in it. Some of the, the previous social movements like the peace movement and, and a lot of the religiously based social movements have, have emphasized that even if no one sees your act of resistance... That, that it's still worthwhile and important because of what it does to you and how it changes you internally. Describe that. Describe, describe the transformation. So I see it on two levels. One, in terms of empowerment. That when you put yourself in that risky position, in that vulnerable position, and facing things that you fear, whether that's facing the cops that you fear, facing maybe the the hecklers that that you fear you know or or the the people who might be threatening you facing going to jail and you see yourself get through it and 
you rely on the people around you in the in the movement that you're with to support one another and you realize that together you you're more powerful than you ever realized and and you can face those fears face those threats stronger than you ever thought you could be because you're part of this movement that's that's really empowering and i think after that then i think it it opens up a lot of creativity for people that that once you realize you're more powerful than you ever thought you could be you start to see a lot more opportunities for how you can have an impact whereas when you believe that that you're weak and you're alone and you can't really make much of a difference you never see an opportunity because your brain just immediately shuts down any ideas that you could have because it says, oh, that's impossible. Oh, that we can never make a difference. Oh, right. Oh, oh, that's not allowed. (laughs) The law is the law. Right. And so breaking through that mental barrier, I think, is actually one of the most profound parts of, of civil disobedience. But then the other way that I see it affecting the people engaged beyond empowerment is just kind of the simple catharsis of the moment and the catharsis is both sort of having the the internal integrity where our actions are in alignment with with our sentiment Um, you know edward abbey once wrote that sentiment without action is the ruin of the soul and and something i've talked about a lot over the years is that from the moment that i disrupted that auction like in the auction room itself i felt this incredible internal peacefulness where where for the first time I felt like my my actions were actually in alignment with with my sentiment about the severity of the of the climate crisis, and and so it had that real cathartic healing effect. And the, the other way the catharsis happens, I think, is just giving an an appropriate outlet to the anger and outrage that a lot of us rightly feel about this system of corporate exploitation and and government complicity with uh, a model that that fundamentally values short-term cop- corporate profits of the fossil fuel industry ahead of the lives and well-being of all of us you know it's it's outrageous to see that and and a lot of times there's nothing to do with our anger and that anger can can get toxic at times if if we try to repress it but i think that anger is perfectly appropriate and and needs to have a healthy expression. And I think nonviolent civil disobedience is is one of those healthy expressions that that can start to flip the power dynamics. You know, that's not necessarily a, a healthy feeling to get addicted to. You know, I think that right. can I think that can happen. But it's a useful feeling every once in a while to get through that anger and and into something productive towards towards creating the kind of world we want to see given the state of the climate crisis anger is a very appropriate response so it's freaking out and grief and depression all that stuff but anger yes yeah absolutely i mean we could we could do a whole episode on anger and we probably should someday um because i do like we'll get mark ruffalo on here a hulk to do that would be awesome yeah hulk um (laughs) (laughs) besides movement building the invitation individual transformation what kind of larger cultural impact can civil disobedience have? You know, some of the critics of civil disobedience, even within social movements and among our allies, say that it's entirely negative, that it's all like just saying no to things. And I don't think that's true. I actually think that, that civil disobedience, in a way, is actually building the kind of world that, that we want to see. 
because one of the things that we're that we're doing with civil disobedience as as a funda- at a fundamental level is we're exercising power through vulnerability through our own vulnerability and that's something that's that's really countercultural for for our society in civil disobedience you're putting yourself in a vulnerable position both by exposing yourself publicly to to ridicule to criticism whatever that may be by exposing yourself physically to to cops or people that climb cranes and that sort of thing to to prevent construction you know they're they're putting themselves in a physical physically risky position in that way or people that are putting themselves in a risky position legally by by risking arrest risking incarceration they're leveraging their own vulnerability and through that vulnerability exercising power because they are tapping into people's empathy and so they they are tapping into that piece that I think is is a really fundamental part of our human nature, where we can't help but be moved when we see someone in our vulnerable position, and it and it breaks us out of that normal day to day routine where we all have lots of things to worry about and lots of things to consume our attention, whether they're tangibly useful things like how do I make sure I can put food on the table next week or or you know distraction things of like what's going on with with my favorite TV show this week we, we've got lots of things that consume our mind from day to day and and to break us out of that is a big challenge and activists try in lots of different ways to break people out of that but I think I think our empathy is a really really powerful part of of who we are at a deep level as human beings yeah and and so through that empathy is is the potential to really get people's attention through our own vulnerability. And you know, the reason that that's so countercultural is because so much of our society is shaped around a perspective on power that defines it as domination and control. And and that's really at the root of the climate crisis, it's at the root of, of so many of our forms of oppression, of, of patriarchy, of colonialism and, and racism, and frankly, most of capitalism that is based on a kind of power based on control and domination of like, I'm powerful because of how I can hurt someone else or what I can take away um, or, or how I can control this situation. And to step forward publicly and say, I'm powerful because I'm vulnerable and because I know you can't help but care about my vulnerability. Because I know you have empathy. That's a, that's a radically different kind of power in the public sphere that, that is not only effective for our campaigns of getting people to pay attention and putting pressure on leaders and all of those things that we that we need to be doing it's also fundamentally transformative to be exercising that kind of power in the public sphere 
and demonstrating that we don't have to have a society built on the power of domination, that we can be doing things in a fundamentally different way. And in fact, we absolutely need to, to be addressing the climate crisis, because this is at the root of how we got here. We absolutely need to be exercising a different kind of power and strength, not built on domination, in order to alleviate all of the social tensions and oppressions that, that we have, that that are going to become catastrophic as we face the hardships of the climate crisis. This, this is one of the fundamental things that we need to do to alleviate and, and adapt to the climate crisis and, and all of its implications. And so when we're exercising that kind of power of vulnerability through civil disobedience, we are actually creating the kind of world that we want to see with a different kind of power and showing that it's possible. Right, and using that to build and accelerate the movement. Like I've loved the stories through your work in the Climate Disobedience Center, um, actually going back to the Lobster Boat Blockade and Sam Sutter, seeing people who you know, are the, you call them, I think, unlikely allies, people who are not, in theory, on your side. You know, they're maybe um, prosecutors. And by being moved by your action, the action, they have a change of heart. Yeah, you know, it's a it's a weird thing about the climate crisis is that people can be really struggling with it internally for a long time and like you never know who's going through that existential crisis. Right. You know, conventional wisdom around social movements says that there's this ladder of engagement that you need to mm-hmm. start people with something easy and then they step up to a little more engagement and then they do something a little a little more challenging and you know, up and up and up. But some of what we've seen is that, you know, people can be quietly internally grappling with this stuff for a while and then all of a sudden they just say i'm ready i'm ready to do something bold and and they really are and part of what makes the difference is just knowing that that there are other people who feel this too and and that they'll have your back and that there's a movement there ready to support you the difficult thing around organizing based on a power of vulnerability is that you know a a central leader kind of figure can't and shouldn't step up and say I want you to go make yourself vulnerable because that's not the same kind of power of vulnerability. That's exploitation. That's like making people into a foot soldier, you know, and throwing them out to the front line to be cannon fodder. That's a very different thing. And and so it has to come from an internal motivation. And I think people can tell the difference. That's That's when it's effective. That's when it's powerful. And so the only way a movement can really organize people to engage in that kind of really authentic civil disobedience based on the power of vulnerability is just to let them know that they have that potential, that they are strong enough, and and that there will be a lot of us standing right there by their side and having their back. Right. right. Before we close, speak to the support that's required to engage in civil disobedience. We need like a disclaimer. No one should go out and engage in nonviolent civil disobedience without anyone knowing you're going to do it. Right? It's important to have support, a community. So speak to the preparation or the infrastructure supporting civil disobedience. Even just two and a half years ago, when we were trying to start the, the Climate Disobedience Center, you know, we saw that this was a, a big gap in the movement where people didn't have the kind of support that they needed when they were engaging in risky actions. And so we tried to fill that gap. But, but already there's so many other folks also stepping into that space. Some of it new organizations like the Climate Defense Project, uh, a group of lawyers that, that are helping people out with civil disobedience cases. And some of it from, from more established organizations that, that realize they need to, 
to hold people in a different way, hold people as full human beings as they're going through that process. And, and so that's, that's definitely encouraging to see. And, and, you know, I think anybody who feels called to, to take civil disobedience should be, should be reaching out both within their own communities of, of folks who can support them through that and, and through some of the more established pieces of the climate movement that are there to support them through that process from from the training and and the strategizing piece of it all the all the way through the the action and potential legal consequences and whatever may happen down the road great well there's a lot happening with civil disobedience climate trials especially around the necessity defense we'll be talking about that soon with jay o'hara we'll be talking small group organizing with marla markham both of them you are fellow founders of the climate disobedience center and climate journalist and meteorologist Eric Holthouse has accepted our invitation to be a guest. So, lots to discuss. Yeah, the, the conversation will continue, so, so stick with us here on the Climate Workshop Podcast. Oh, wait, we have to have a shout-out to our new patrons. We took the New England Snowbomb Cyclones, Monomageddon Snow Day, to launch our Patreon page and start moving towards being listener-supported. You know what that means. An invitation. If you value these conversations and can spare a dollar or more per episode, become a patron of the show. Just visit climateworkshop.org and click become a patron. We appreciate your support. Our music is by Brian K. Hall. Still light that flickers is a light that still burns on. Light that flickers is a light that still burns on. I take care of the spark, but baby, won't you lend your pretty little palm just to shield it from the wind? And honey, baby, maybe this light will be burning long. Woo-hoo.